Today, we're going to continue in the book of Jude, uh, just as much as summer is winding down, which I know a lot of these kids aren't very happy about that. The book of Jude is winding down, and you're probably all a little bit happy about that. Uh, So Jude has spent the first uh, bulk of this letter that he wrote laying out for us the challenges that churches face, specifically the churches, you know, of his day, the challenges that they were facing of these false teachers who had infiltrated the churches by stealth, uh, but also it's a challenge for us. We face similar challenges today. These, these wolves in sheep's clothing that look good on the outside, they talk a good talk, but inwardly they're toxic, they're dangerous. And Jude uh, gives us one final warning in today's passage before he moves on to a little bit more of the positive, proactive part of his letter where he's going to tell us how we contend for the faith against these challenges that we are facing. Uh, So today he's going to tell us to watch out for the way of the wicked because if we're not careful, we can end up following them or following their example down a road that leads to nowhere that takes us far off the trail into dangerous territory. So let's look at Jude. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15 today. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against Him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your inspired and inerrant Word that is true and authoritative in our lives. And we pray, God, that Your Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to hear the Word You have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing here in verse 11 that Jude gives us is a word of woe to the wicked. A word of woe to the wicked. That woe to them, that kind of grabs your attention, doesn't it? Uh, That's a a common refrain uh, in Scripture. The Old Testament prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, they often spoke words of woe either on Israel or Judah because of their unfaithfulness to God, their idolatry, or a word of woe to the surrounding nations for their wickedness. Jesus, in Matthew 23, gives seven woes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here, Jude uses a verbal form that emphasizes the finality and certainty of judgment and destruction on these wicked spiritual con men. And he points us to three examples from the Old Testament, three kinds of wicked people. So let's look at those. The first, he claims that they are being like Cain. And he says they are walking a selfish path. They're walking a selfish path. Now we find the story of Cain in Genesis 4. You may remember that story. He's one of the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. 
And they both bring offerings before God. Abel brings uh, from the sheep of his field a blood sacrifice, a commitment that's total and complete. Cain brings some of the fruit from his garden and gives it to the Lord. And God accepts Abel's and He does not accept Cain's. Now, the Scripture tells exactly why He doesn't accept Cain's. We can infer some things, and I'll, I'll mention that in a moment. But regardless, He doesn't accept Cain's, and that really upsets Cain. And Cain becomes very jealous and full of hatred. And God comes to Cain and confronts him about this and says, Why are you so upset? And in verse 7, He warns Cain. He says, If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so Cain doesn't listen to God. He rejects this warning from God, and instead he plots and carries out the first murder. He kills his brother Abel in the field, and then when God confronts him about it, he denies responsibility. So which of these evils, because there's a lot of bad stuff going on in that story of Cain and Abel, which of these evils is the way of Cain that Jude is accusing these false teachers of following? Is it jealousy? Is it murderous hatred? Is it rejecting God's warning about sin? A lot of scholars think that God accepted Abel's and refused Cain because God had either earlier given them instruction that sacrifices should be a blood offering or it's, it's analogous to Cain just kind of making up his own rules and, and it's sort of been interpreted as an example of man-made religion. And so is that what Jude is pointing to, that these false teachers are sort of creating their own man-made religion? Uh, I think it's perhaps all of the above. Because all of that wickedness, murder, hate, jealousy, anger, rebellion, disobedience, all of that comes from the same place. It comes from a self-centered, self-serving spirit. They were being selfish. In fact, the ancient Jewish philosopher Philo described Cain as a man enslaved to self-love. And so Jude's false teachers are like Cain and that they reject the clear word of God in favor of a Burger King-style religion. Have it your way. They treat religion like a golden corral buffet. You pick the parts that you like and you leave behind the parts that you don't. They reject a Christ-centered relationship in favor of a self-centered religion. And for that, like Cain, they are doomed to wander in spiritual wilderness as fugitives. He says they're like Cain. They follow a selfish path. He secondly says they're like Balaam. They take a greedy plunge. Now, Peter, 2 Peter, as I've said before, reflects a lot of Jew. They're very similar in, in certain parts. And so 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16 says this, also describing false teachers. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness but received the rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So uh, Balaam's story is in the book of Numbers. You probably are familiar with him because of the talking donkey, right? Everybody loves the story about the talking donkey. If God can make a donkey talk, he can certainly speak through any of us. Amen? So people think about that. But Balaam's story is about so much more than that. Balaam was a Moabite prophet for hire. And so the king of Moab was feeling threatened at this impending Israelite mass 
that was coming their way. You know, they've been liberated from slavery in Egypt. They're making their way to the promised land. Uh, The Moabites get really nervous about this. And so the king turns to Balaam and pays him to go speak curses on Israel. But God takes every attempt that Balaam made to curse Israel and he turns it into a blessing. And so Balaam keeps going back to the king of Moab. I can't curse them. God won't let me. All I can do is bless them. So they go to plan B. And Balaam goes later on to the people of Israel, the men of Israel, and the Scripture says that he enticed them to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab, which involved not only sleeping with them, but making sacrifices to their fertility gods. So they were engaged in idolatry as well as immorality. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was a spiritual huckster. He pretended to serve God when really all he was serving was gold. Money was his master. And Judah's accusing these false teachers of, of treating their ministry as a front to really line their pockets. Really, for them, it's all about advancing themselves, elevate themselves, earning money for themselves for the right price. They're willing to lead God's people astray into sin. Whether it's Balaam, these first century false teachers, or the false teachers of today, the lies are the same. Right? They say, you don't want to be a religious nut, do you? You don't people think of you as a holier-than-thou Jesus freak, do you? I mean, it won't really hurt for you to mix in with the crowd. I mean, can't you love God and love the world? I mean, after all, didn't Jesus eat with sinners? But you see, their intent is not for us to confront people in their sin and lead them to Jesus. No, they want to take the grace of God and turn it into a license to sin. They don't want to confront anyone as being sinners. They just want to just accept everyone and everything as is with no call to repent. And God will judge them just as He judged Balaam with destruction. And the third example is Korah. And he says that like Korah, for their rebellion, they will perish. Now, I want you to notice this progression. They go from walking in the path of Cain to taking a plunge into deception with Balaam to perishing with Korah. I mean, they're accelerating and spinning their wheels downhill into destruction. Now, Korah's story is also found in Numbers. And he incited a rebellion against Moses and Aaron's God-ordained leadership. Korah was from the same tribe as Moses and Aaron. They were family. He was a Levite like they were. But he was, he was uh, rejecting and he was upset about the fact that God had restricted the priesthood to Aaron and his sons. He resented that. In fact, it says in Numbers 16.3 that Korah and his followers, this mob that he's gathered, it says they came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, you have gone too far. Everyone in the entire community is holy and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? And God deals with this rebellion immediately and severely. The ground literally opens up and swallows alive Korah, his followers, their families, all of their possessions into the deep darkness of the earth, and they perish. So Jude 
compares these false teachers to Korah because they are denying Christ's lordship. They've rejected God's authority in favor of their own dreams and ideas like we talked about last week. And like the fallen angels Jude mentioned in verse 6, they have overstepped their bounds in defiance of God's divinely intended order. Now, if you go back to that last verse there, Micah, if you go back to the last verse, if you look at what Korah said, it's not exactly wrong, is it? Everyone in Israel was holy and that they, as a nation, had been set apart. That's what holy means. They had all been set apart for God. And it's true, the Lord was among them. The tabernacle was in the midst of the nation. So what he said sounds pretty good. There are certainly Bible verses that tell us we shouldn't exalt ourselves, right? He's taking Scripture. He's taking the idea of what God said in Exodus 19.6 where He says to Israel, you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's taking these words of Scripture and twisting them for His own purposes, making them say what they are not intending to say, and He's using that to negate God's establishment of this priestly line of Aaron. He's trying to deny any sphere of authority under which we have to submit ourselves. Like the fallen angels, they're refusing to submit themselves to anyone's authority, which ultimately means they're rejecting the authority of God. There are those today who balk at God's divine ordering of families and the church. They reject the notion that God calls husbands to be the spiritual leaders of their family. They twist Scripture to deny its clear teaching that just as God restricted the priesthood for Aaron and his sons, God has restricted the office of pastor to men qualified as we read in the Bible. And they deny the very difference that God created us as male and female. Jude is unequivocal in his pronouncement that judgment comes on anyone, any pastor, any teacher, any leader who loves money, pleasure, or power more than the gospel. Anyone who distorts God's grace and rejects God's Word, who are more interested in fame and fortune than faithfulness to Christ, who preach a gospel of cheap grace that says you can love God and the things of this world, people who are more interested in your happiness than your holiness, their judgment is coming. And in fact, it's so certain, Jude says it's like it's already happened. They've already perished with Korah. Unless they repent, woe to them. Woe to them for leading God's people astray. That's the word of woe that he gives to the wicked. But secondly, in verses 12 and 13, he gives a word of warning to us about the wicked. Let's look again at verses 12 and 13. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They're waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn fruitless, twice dead and uprooted, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. So he gives us a warning about these false teachers he's been describing and talking about all this time. And the first warning he gives us is don't trust them, they're dangerous. Don't trust them, they're dangerous. Now, he talks about love feasts here, and you might hear love feasts, and what in the world is that? You know, is that like the old uh, Valentine's Day banquets we used to have back in the day? Is that what he's talking about? Love feast is the first century term that describes basically the Lord's Supper in the early church. But they didn't just 
do it as a part of a normal worship service. They included it as a full meal. So think like Wednesday night supper, they would gather every week in somebody's home. They would have a full meal together, much like a Seder meal that the Lord's Supper was, was brought from. So they eat a whole meal together, and as a part of that meal, they observe the Lord's Supper. They break the bread, they pass the cup, and they do this in remembrance of Jesus. Well, what Jude is saying is that these false teachers are coming to these meals and eating among them, fully welcomed into the community as fellow believers, despite their uh, deceptive words and their sinful ways. They're just being brought right in, an open defiance of God's Word, showing any lack of reverence, no remorse whatsoever. They see nothing wrong with what they're saying and doing, and they expect the whole church to not only agree with them, but applaud them. That's what Jude is saying. And so he compares them to being dangerous reefs just under the surface of the water. It's the image of a ship that's looking for a safe harbor. And you see that harbor and you make way for it, but right at the harbor entrance is a dangerous reef right under the waters that you don't see. And unexpectedly, you hit it and you sink and you're destroyed. Similar analogy, they're like shepherds. They appear to be shepherds. And what do shepherds do? Shepherds lead and feed and guard the flock from predators and thieves, but they're really there to serve themselves. And, and he might even mean literally there to serve themselves. When we read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he talks about that at these love feasts, at these Lord's Supper gatherings, you had some of the wealthier, more influential people that were coming there and they were gorging themselves on the food. They were getting drunk on the wine while some of their uh, poorer members of the church sitting in less preferential places were only getting the scraps. And Paul rebukes them for this. And maybe that's the kind of thing that these shepherds are doing. They're literally serving themselves and feeding themselves at the expense of the church. And the tragedy of this at the Lord's Supper is what is supposed to show unity and fellowship instead reveals pride and division. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel use this analogy of wicked shepherds and God says that He will judge Israel's leaders as wicked shepherds because he has led, they have led His sheep astray and abandoned them to predators. Or even worse, they have slaughtered God's sheep to feed and clothe themselves. Jesus warns us about shepherds for hire who at the first sign of danger abandoned the flock as opposed to Jesus, the good shepherd, who willingly lays down His life for the sheep. And in a similar way, Jude warns his readers, all is not well as it seems at your fellowship dinners and your worship services and Lord's suppers. There are those among you who are dangerous hypocrites. They're like hidden reefs under the surface of the water. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. Their gentle, loving appearance masks dangerous teachings and sinful lifestyles that can wreck and sink the church. Don't trust them. They're dangerous. Secondly, he says, don't believe them. Don't trust them. Don't believe what they say. Now, here Jude begins to use a series of examples from the four realms of nature, from the sea, the land, the sky, and the heavens. And Jude warns us not to believe, not to even listen to these deceptive leaders because they will never deliver on their promises. They talk a big talk, but there's no follow-through. And here he gives us two reasons not to believe what they say. First, he says, they will only disappoint you. They will only let you down. 
They're like clouds without rain. Now, in Israel, there's only two seasons, the rainy season and the dry season, okay? And much of the land is arid most of the year, but they rely on this short rainy season to give them all the water that they would collect in cisterns and all these aqueduct systems and, and you know, to drink and to uh, have ritual, uh, you know, mikvah uh, baths, kind of like baptisms and to water their crops. They would collect all this water in that short rainy season for the rest of the year. So you can imagine living in that kind of environment, the hope that rain clouds on the horizon forming would bring. Right? You're looking out over the Mediterranean Sea where the rain comes from. You see these clouds coming and you get excited. Oh, it's rain! We are going to get rain! And the wind blows them right over and they don't give you a drop of water. Sort of like, you know... If you garden like I do and you go for a week and it's hot and it's dry and there's been no rain and you look on the radar and you see this wonderful line of green and red moving down I-20, you get so excited and then it gets to McDuffie County and it just does this. It's like that. They will only disappoint you. At Proverbs 25, 14, this is almost uh, taken directly from Proverbs. It says, The one who boasts about a gift that does not exist... It's like clouds and wind without rain. False teachers promise to satisfy your thirst, but they always leave you parched. Their words are powerless. Their promises are useless. They will never deliver. All they have to give the thirsty traveler is sand, like a mirage in the desert. Don't believe them. They will disappoint you. And secondly, don't believe them because they're spiritually dead. That's why they disappoint you. They're spiritually dead. He compares them to trees without fruit. Now again, this is a common analogy in Scripture we heard in our Old Testament reading that those who trust in God and live by His Word are like trees planted by living waters who bear fruit in season. And they don't wither. Okay, Jesus, remember, He cursed a fig tree because it was not going to bear fruit in the proper season. In John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus says, Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. It would be foolish to expect fruit from even a healthy tree out of season, right? Right? You're not going to go in, in the dead of winter and look for peaches on the peach trees that are ripe and ready to eat, right? It's not going to happen. But it would be more foolish to go up to a tree that's been uprooted and laying on the ground and expect fruit from it, wouldn't it? And so here, Jude is making an ironic comparison. He's saying that while these false teachers might look and sound like they're spiritually alive and healthy leaders, they're twice dead. Not only are they fruitless, they're rootless. There's no life there. He's conveying the utter ridiculousness of turning to these men for any kind of spiritual insight because they themselves are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to give. No wonder you can't trust them or believe them. No wonder they're going to disappoint you. Third, he says, don't listen to them. Their deeds will defile. He talks about waves foaming up shame. Now, Jude is moving from the lack of good works of these leaders to their prevalence of evil works. Yeah, they don't have any good works. They're not producing any fruit. They don't have any rain. But what they do have, oh, they can foam up the shame left and right. 
Again, this comes from an Old Testament verse. He says in Isaiah 57, 20, But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. Have you ever been on the beach after a storm? Okay, maybe after a hurricane or, or something, and, and you walk along the beach and it's just littered with trash, right? There's debris, there's seaweed, there's you know, maybe dead sea creatures, all kinds of broken seashells, maybe trash. And sometimes you even see like the foam that's all foamed up and it's, it's dirty and it's smelly. That's the idea. It's not pleasant. You don't want to go dip your toes in that and sit there and enjoy a day at the beach. Well, in verse 16, and we're going to get to this next week, Jude accused them of uttering arrogant words and flattering speech. The Greek word there, the Greek phrase there literally means swelling words. Like the swelling waves of the ocean. They make a lot of noise. They say a lot of very impressive and dramatic things, but what do they produce? They only churn up the pollution of their sinful lives, leaving behind a residual, grimy, foamy shame. That's what he says. Don't listen to their heresy. Don't believe their arrogant words. Don't give a moment's thought to their flattery because really it's only for their personal gain anyway. All they really produce is the shame of their sinful lives. And then finally he tells us don't depend on them because they will soon disappear. He calls them wandering stars. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what he means by that. Does he mean shooting stars, you know? Because stars don't wander, right? So maybe he's talking about shooting stars. Well, the thing is that uh, the phrase that he uses is asterisk planeta. That's the normal Greek word for planets. It literally means wandering stars. But that's what the Greeks called planets. Now, long before Jude, they understood what planets were. They understood that planets were not stars, of course, that they were heavenly bodies that had a regular course. You could, you could look at them. You could count on them. You knew when they were going to come. They would watch the movement of these things. But they still called them wandering stars, even though they understood that they weren't stars. I think Jude's making a play on words. Okay, planetai comes from the root word that means error. Now, what does he say up here about Balaam? They have plunged into Balaam's error. Plane, planetai. He's making a play on words. Just as Balaam's error, his deception, his wandering and straying that led Israel astray, these false teachers are stars that are astray. If you try to chart your life by their course, they're going to lead you in the wrong direction. right? If you're a, if you're a sailor on the ocean, you're not going to chart your course by the planets. They move. You're going to find the North Star, right? You're going to find a certain constellation. You're going to... These things that are constant at, at that day, at that time of year, that's what you're going to look at, not the planets. But also, they are sort of like shooting stars because they're a flash in the pan. They shine bright for a moment and then they fade away. They disappear into the darkness forever. Either way, don't depend on them. They are only going to disappoint you. We can sum up these four examples from nature with these three types of wicked people to say this. Anyone who pastors a church, teaches a Sunday school class, serves on the mission field, in any way claims to speak for or work for the Lord, if you abandon the clear teaching of Scripture, 
If you promote sinful pleasures, seek your own profit, reject God's authority, you're like clouds that won't bring rain, you're like trees that won't bear fruit, you're like wild waves whose shame is exposed in the chaos of sin, and you're like those who stray from God's path into utter darkness. And such people are dangerous, untrustworthy, self-seeking, and spiritually toxic. That's the warning that Jude is giving us today. That's the danger lurking beneath the waves of these first century churches and ours is our, our day as well. Those are the kinds of deceitful shepherds they were dealing with. So Jude has spent these you know, 13 verses warning us about these people, making the case for us to rise up and contend for the faith against these people. Now all of this can be a little depressing. It can be a little discouraging, can it? You look at what's going on in our world today. You look at what's going on in churches and denominations around our country today, and it's alarming. And it can make you afraid. Well, Jude ends his section here with the word of hope for the churches to remind us that in the end, we are on the winning side. God will not be mocked, and people will eventually reap what they sow. And so the final word here is a word to watch a word to watch for the churches. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way. You think these people are ungodly? And concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against Him. So Jude... Now, Jude not only loves to use Old Testament examples, right? I mean, how many Old Testament examples has he used so far in his letter? He loves these examples from the Old Testament. He also likes to quote from contemporary Jewish writers. Now, we've talked about that some before. And here it appears that he's quoting from a contemporary Jewish uh, writing called First Enoch that was not written by Enoch. Even the people that day knew this wasn't written by Enoch. Enoch, you might remember, he's the seventh generation from Adam. He was the man who was righteous, he walked with God, and then he was not for God took him. So he did not die. God simply just translated him straight up into heaven. And so Enoch apparently had a prophecy. Now, the fact that Jude quotes some of these extra-biblical writings does not mean he endorses them as being inspired Scripture. Paul, in, uh, in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he quotes from Roman poets. So he's not claiming those poets are inspired. They're using contemporary examples as we might today quoting somebody to make a point. So he's quoting from First Enoch, but based on what he says about it, and the fact this is inspired Scripture, lets us know that at least something in that book was true. That there had been a prophecy that Enoch had spoken all those thousands of years before that had made its way down through oral tradition to this day. And Jude recognizes that this is a true prophecy. And he says this, he says, First, God will come with His angels. That's a word for us to watch, a word of hope. God will come with His angels. Now, throughout the Bible, we're promised that there will be a day of the Lord, a culmination of history at the second coming of Christ. Jesus is going to return with His heavenly host in victory. Amen? He's coming again. This is a word of great hope. The second coming of Jesus is going to be radically different from His first. He's not coming for a cross but for a crown. Not to lay in a manger, but to sit on a throne. Not to die, but to reign forever and ever. He's going to come with His angels to judge the living and the dead. 
There's a word of hope. History is going somewhere. Christ will be victorious. God is coming again with His angels. But He's coming, secondly, to judge everyone. He's coming to judge everyone. Now, the Greek word here is all-encompassing. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment. Everyone. Everyone is destined to die and stand before God and give an account of their lives. Romans 14.10-12 says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every one of us will find a day that we stand before the throne of God, and he will judge us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But there are two different kinds of judgment that people will stand before on that day. And at which kind of judgment we stand before all depends on one thing. What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? What have you done with the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ died to offer you? Everyone will be judged, but those apart from Christ, those who have never accepted that gift of grace, will be convicted and condemned for all eternity. So God will judge everyone, but secondly, God will convict the ungodly. He'll convict the ungodly. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Right? We all have sinned. We're all guilty sinners. Every one of us. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the payment that we earn, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The key here in Jude 15 is that oft-repeated word, ungodly. That literally is someone who has rejected God. They have no reverence, no fear of the Lord. It echoes back to where Jude earlier called them ungodly and said that they had rejected God's authority and denied God's Son. That's the ultimate sin for which people will be condemned to hell forever and ever. It's the sin of ungodliness. It's the sin of refusing the free, gracious gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. If somebody goes to hell, it's not because they told a lie. We've all told a lie. It's because they never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, they will have to give an account and pay for the deeds they've done in their body. No one gets a pass for their sin. No action, no word gets a pass. That's why Jude makes it clear. The ungodly will be judged for two things. Their works, they do ungodly things in an ungodly way, and for their words, the harsh things they said against Him, against Jesus, the blasphemy that they've uttered for their false teachings. Go back to that Hebrews 9.27, and also let's read verse 28. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. In other words, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven. You've been washed clean. You, though you are guilty, have been declared righteous because Jesus became your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. A great exchange took place on that cross for all who will willingly receive that gift. We are saved. 
from an eternal spiritual death. When we, like Enoch, walk with God in faith, when we seek first His kingdom and righteousness. So if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't have to fear the second coming of Christ. You don't have to fear standing before the judgment seat of Christ because when you stand before His seat, you're not there to hear the words, depart from me for I never knew you, but you're there to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful service, servant. Enter into your Master's happiness. That's what we hear as we stand as believers before His judgment seat. My question for you is which will you hear? Which judgment will you stand before? Do you know? Are you guessing? Listen, I wouldn't bet my life on that guess, much less my eternity. If you don't know that you have turned from your sin and faith and put your trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you in just a moment to come and do that today. Don't leave this place if you don't know that you belong to Jesus. Don't leave this room if the return of Christ doesn't stir hope in your heart. If it stirs fear, if you're feeling conviction this morning, you need to come and do business with God today and get right with Him and know when you leave this place, you're a child of the King. And when He comes back, He's coming to bring you home. I invite you to do that today. Maybe this morning, even as a Christian, you have found yourself straying down the way of Cain, taking a plunge into Balaam's deception, being on the side of rebellious people like Korah. Maybe this morning you have fallen victim to wicked leaders in the past who have misled you, betrayed your trust, promised you things that never materialized. And now you see them as the dangerous reefs and the ravenous wolves that they really were all along. I invite you this morning to trust in the one who will never disappoint you and the one who is faithful and true to the end. Come and let him heal your wounded heart. Put your trust in him today. Let's pray together. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that warns us of those who are truly in the employ of Satan. And God, they can sound good. They can look good. They can wear a shiny suit. They can stand there on television with a gorgeous set behind them and say all kinds of things that tickle our ears and sound good. But they're spouting falsehood. They're seeking to lead people astray and to line their own pockets. God, I pray that you would turn those people from the error of their ways. God, I pray for their repentance and salvation. But I pray, God, too, that you would thwart them, that you would resist them at every turn, and that you would rescue those who follow after their falsehoods. Father, I pray for everyone in this room today. If there's anyone today that has not put their trust in Jesus for salvation, I pray they would do that today, that today would be their spiritual birthday, that they could then walk through these waters of baptism as Mary Evelyn and Brooks have done today because they've trusted in Jesus. God, forgive us when we, even as Christians, who know better, who know the truth, find ourselves sometimes being led down the wrong path by these slick-sounding people in our culture and even in churches today. God, rescue us from that and help us to walk Your straight path and follow Your clear and inspired Word. God, whatever Your Spirit is speaking to hearts today, may we be obedient and not rebellious. In Jesus' name we pray. You'll recognize this tune. Let's sing together.